Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh, serve fast, serve friendly, lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. Over the next three episodes, Oscar will be speaking with the former governor of Kentucky, John Y. Brown. In episode 65, Governor Brown will discuss his days growing up in Lexington and how his father in sports became such a huge influence on the path to success. As a student at UK, Governor Brown will share his memories of Coach Adolph Rupp and Coach Bear Bryant and how Colonel Sanders was able to get one more year for Coach Rupp at UK. John Y. Brown was a successful entrepreneur, and that was evident with his purchase of Kentucky Fried Chicken. He retells the story of how the colonel contacted him and how the arrangements were made to purchase Kentucky Fried Chicken. From one colonel to another, John Y. Brown's fear of not failing led him to purchase the Kentucky Colonels of the American Basketball Association. We'll hear about his ownership of the Colonels and who was really in charge of the day-to-day operations of the Kentucky Colonels. John Y. Brown was as self-made as they come, drawing inspiration from his relationship with his father, being in the right place at the right time, and his passion to succeed was the foundation for bigger things to come. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs, and his guest, the former governor of the state of Kentucky, John Y. Brown. Governor, I don't know anyone in this state now, before, or when the state was formed that's had the impact on so many people and so many different forms of business, politics, and sports. As a person who's owned three NBA clubs, has owned an ABA club, has been governor, has made a fortune in the business world, we Kentucky Fried Chicken. You name you your speaking buddies most of your adult life with two of the icons of our mm-hmm. Commonwealth, Muhammad Ali and Colonel Harlan Sanders. You you believe it pretty much all. Well, I've been awful lucky. A lot of luck and a lot of time in life and I haven't hit the right stride and and there is a lot of luck. A lot of luck in whatever you do, uh, whether it's sports or you look at the NBA now, it looks like they got one team and they followed into five all-stars. But uh, I've always loved sports, and I wasn't very good at it. But I, uh, uh, I went out football, basketball, golf, swimming, stayed busy. Uh, but it's been my greatest love as a sideline. I mean, I'm still uh, – with my hip replacement I had two weeks ago uh, – I, uh, there's not much sports on, so it's pretty boring around here with let's, let's tennis little, and, and uh, soccer. Let's talk a little bit about your childhood. You had four sisters. Yes. Uh-huh. Grew up here in Lexington. Yes. Uh, what was life like 
your father was a well-known attorney, yeah. a statesman, politician. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I was sort of the middle child, but I had four sisters. And so I got all the attention, and I guess I, I like getting the attention. And uh, I had a father very ambitious and always, uh, I don't think he ever talked to me about sex or religion or anything except someday I want you to do what I couldn't do. And, and he was a farm boy that uh, grew up as a, I think Kentucky's greatest trial lawyer in the last hundred years. You'll probably confirm that in your own thoughts. I mean, most of his practice was always the mountains. But he motivated me, inspired me, gave me a lot of confidence. And and where when I when opportunity came, I guess uh, I wasn't afraid to to challenge it. And I wasn't afraid of failure, because he tried so many times running for governor, running for the United States Senate. Uh, he was an inspiration for me. When you were growing up. You had 17 letters. Yeah, wasn't very good, but I did. I mean, what I, sports? Well, I had like six in uh, in golf, and I had five in swimming, and I had three, I think, in in football, and maybe two in basketball. Pretty good golfer from yeah. all of them. Well, I couldn't. Uh, I grew up with Gay Brewer, fortunately, and and we became great friends. Played. Uh, I think won state championships twice because of gay in high school, and then uh, played four years with him at uh, UK. Uh, and uh, I remember, <laughs> I never could beat him. I remember one night, Dad, because I was number two and he was always number one, said, uh, Johnny, I don't know why you can't beat Junior. Junior Burr was his name. Uh, you're bigger than he is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we had a great friendship. And the only time I was in the finals of a golf tournament in, in Paris. Uh, I had him beat on the last hole, and darn if he doesn't score one across the fairway and uh, behind a tree and hit the damn flag and then whirled around and dropped out two feet. <laughs> and that was my chance to win, but we had a great friendship. In fact, uh, I was fortunate to be notified about um, Gay maybe uh, being named to the Picket Home Golf Course out here. And I ran into a Guy at a branch bank here, he said, you know, you all named that golf course after uh, Gay Brewer, the one we both grew up on, Pick It Home. I said, I will get that done. And I called the mayor at that time, and he turned me over to some cabinet person who came back and said it was going to cost 75000 to change the cards and the flags and all that BS stuff, you know, the corporate stuff. And, and so I didn't even bother with it. I just called Billy Reed, and I said, you come with me. We're going down to the city council. I'd never been to city council meeting. And uh, we brought it up, and I had some, a man named Maloney that was a representative on the council here that was for the golf course. And they asked, well, let's send over to the branding department and see what they think about this. And Gabe wasn't going to live 30 days. He had, you know, uh, had cancer in the late stages. And so anyway, uh, Mr. Maloney uh, objected, and they – said, well, why did you object? And and then they reversed their vote, and uh, we were allowed to do it. And in two weeks, Jim Holtz was a big help, and we got Arnold Palmer and, and some of the real notables and Jack Nicholas to make a video or a statement. And I don't know if you were there or not. But no, I wasn't there. On, but uh, it was a great thing to do, and a great memory of Gabe. He was the greatest golfer we've ever had, uh, certainly in Lexington, if not Kentucky. You get into University of Kentucky mm -hmm. early mid-50s. Tell me a little bit about your days at UK, uh, particularly 
uh, from football and basketball, Coach Rupp. Uh, I guess Blanton was probably the head coach by the time you were in college. No, uh, Rupp was. Uh, and up until, what was it, 52-3? Oh, you mean, he, you mean he, uh, I mean, Barry. Uh, Barry, oh, Barry was coach until. Through 53. Yeah, and I graduated 52. Oh, okay. And so I was lucky to have the two. And one reason I've been so antagonistic to my university that I loved and uh, but angry at in, in many times because they've never really tried to achieve to the level that they're capable, especially in football. And uh, Barry Bryant had a, a deep impression on me. I mean, I used to play poker at the, at the um, football house uh, with Bob Hardy. and. Now, which is, your, which is your more favorite sport, football or poker? Uh, probably poker. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I, I love ball. I'm, just, I I, I, I'm an action guy, you know, and, <laughs> and I love it. And... Uh, but uh, Bear Bryant, that one saying he had, suck up your guts. I don't know how many times in my life when I had something I didn't want to do, I wish I could find another way around, I'd tell myself, Brown, suck up your guts. You know, that's what he did to Dude Hennessy and all the players that, uh, back in those days. And it left an impression. And plus, they left an impression on how to win. It's okay to win. And, and what bothers me about our UK football, it's like it's okay to lose. Well, it's not okay to lose. Uh, if you're smart and you strategize in time, you'll find a way to the top. As most teams, so many areas less fortunate than us, have built programs. I've heard all the excuses about, you know, we don't have the players, the high school, the black players, and all that. Uh, I don't accept that. I've been too lucky to be around people like Colonel Sanders and Muhammad Ali. What were your first thoughts of Rupp and the basketball team uh, starting out in your high school days at Lafayette, and then when you went to UK. You were there 53, 54, 55, and 56, I guess. Well, you know, he was like a Belichick, you know, of, of his day in basketball. And he was really such a superior coach to all the name ones. And plus, he, he was flamboyant. I mean, you know, he, he created a lot of color and made the game interesting. And he had such a simple format in, in hindsight, and I ran into – Pat Riley, about four or five years ago at the Derby, and I asked him, I said, Pat, did you learn uh, your coaching from Madoff? He said, absolutely. Now, I would have never thought that because L.A. had the gun and run, and, and uh, that's what Rupp told you was keep running, stop dribbling, if you look at the way he coached. But uh, he was a, you know, he's, he built the program here. In fact, I went to for the sports board just to antagonize him. I'm sorry. I, I, I just didn't feel right him being fired even though uh, Singletary had rights to. But I just felt like somebody else speak up for it. And I went for the board, and I took Colonel Sanders with me. You'll enjoy this, Oscar. And I said, you know, you might live a lifetime and never meet a legend. And we have two legends in this room right here in Kentucky. We have Colonel Sanders, yes, and we have Adolph Rupp, who built this program and made this program possible. And I just, I know you're going to vote uh, for this. His past has come. But you ought to give him one more year to go around and celebrate with all the SEC teams of what he's meant to SEC basketball. But whether I should have done that or not, I, I felt like it was deserved for old Adolph. You don't have to look like and say, I wished I'd done that because you did it. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I just wanted to air it. You know, I knew they weren't going to change well, their mind. And uh, Did you know a whole lot about the presidents immediately before Dr. Singletary? Not much. 
if you go back, I mean, I can remember the names from Curlin. And, I mean, there, there was John Oswald, I guess. Oswald, and he was he was a studious type. I never did feel like I knew him very well. All the rest of them I've gotten to know pretty well. Now, you, you went into law school immediately out of college in yes. UK. Uh, I love the story that uh, you engaged some other classmates and earned $25,000 a year while you were in law school selling encyclopedias. Well, that sort of built me the foundation and because uh, I didn't know how to get a job. I mean, I, you know, I'd sold vacuum cleaners and done some odd things in the summer. And, and once I realized that I had to figure out how you make money, uh, and I looked at someone I had in the newspaper that offered $100 a week to, to gave 50 presentations or whatever, and, and I went and applied for the job. And of course, any, they had given a kit to anybody to go out and knock on doors. And, but they, you know, they had a process where they selected you. And well, you know, I felt like I was selected. And that first weekend, I was so motivated to do something. You know, I wasn't a great basketball, football player, but uh, I, I sort of related to this. And it was sort of fun meeting people and being able to try to convince them or communicate with them. And uh, I sold five sets my first week, which $99 a set, which is $500. Uh, but that sort of Oscar prepared me that if you don't work, you don't get paid. And it taught me something about management because I was a branch manager uh, as a sophomore in college. And it just, you know, taught me that I could do something well. And I, I tell parents, uh, or as parents, the greatest thing you ever do to a child is give them confidence of what they're capable of doing. In fact, if you do that, they're going to be all right in most cases. As you're going through law school, uh, you're getting ready to hook up with your dad in the mm -hmm. law firm for a while. And you have a case that you get involved with uh, concerning Paul Horning. Tell me about that. Well, I read, he, Paul is just a friend of mine. Uh, I didn't really get involved. He had another lawyer in Louisville. Uh, I would have tried to help him because... Uh, I felt the penalty was very harsh for what he did uh, in those days. And I think he bet $500 on the opposing, on, on his own team or something. That's when he was with? With the Green Bay Packers. And we were great buddies. And in fact, we used to date the same girls when he was out of town. <laughs> he left the good looking ones around Louisville. And I had an encyclopedia office over there at Louisville at the time. But we became really great friends. And. Uh, as you become a lawyer, I remember the first time I ever heard the name John Y. Brown, only it wasn't John Y. Brown Jr., it was John Y. Brown Sr. Growing up in Perry County near Hazard and living, mm -hmm. I remember at an early age, and this must have been, I guess, in the 50s, uh, there was a notorious murder in Perry County of a fairly uh, upstanding individual, or at least they thought he was, and he was charged with murder, and there was usually an attorney or two in Hazard where the, the, the old saying used to be $10,000 would buy you out of any murder case, mm -hmm. and in this particular situation, he said, fellas, this ain't no $10,000 deal. He better go to the best, and your father was known as the best criminal defense lawyer in the Commonwealth, mm -hmm. not just for a couple of years, but right. for decades, and he was summoned to Hazard by this client. And he quickly determined that he wasn't going to get a fair trial in Hazard for his client. Uh, as as memory goes, 
when he went into the courtroom the first day, prosecution put the sheriff on the witness stand and your dad got up and uh, pretty much dressed him up pretty good one side and down the other to the point the sheriff got out of the witness box and flattened your dad on his back on the floor with a pistol with a pistol that's right I'll that's hit not. him over the head you tell me the rest of it then well what I remember uh, a friend a man named Matheny Matheny I think I sold air conditioners for some company he was with and was a family friend. And uh, he called me and said, uh, John Y. Brown got, I thought he said killed in a hazard. And he said KO'd, you know. Yeah. And it scared me to death. I lost my dad. And he finally <laughs> explained. He, he, it wasn't real clear with his interpretation. And uh, what had happened was uh, I thought the jailer was the one, not the sheriff, but one of them did. Uh, from behind, uh, hit him over the head with the butt of a of a pistol, and knocked him down on the floor. I don't know what happened. Now your story, as I understand, was that he asked for a change of venue. Yeah, he just raised up off the floor and said, "Judge, I move for mistrial and a change of venue." And he I, took the gavel and says, "Granted." I think that adds a little bit of the mountain flavor to the story. <laughs> now, but, now as the story it, went on, they transferred it to Winchester. Yeah. And he didn't get him off completely, but he didn't get the death penalty. Well, he never lost a case as long mm-hmm. as I remember. The only two cases he gave me, the guy had two death penalties that he got reversed by the state Supreme Court. <laughs> so I couldn't lose. And uh, But he was a brilliant lawyer. And, he, and you know, he grew up uh, reading all the Shakespeare and all the, the Bible and all the history about the Greek and the Roman wars and all that. And... Uh, I always saw growing up, I was intimidated because he knew all that stuff that I ever thought I would learn. But uh, he was a, but he, he loved politics more than the law, and he never prepared. He just walked in and, and he dominated the court. Is the story true that your mother often said you're wasting a lot of money on trying to chase politics to your dad? Well, every time he ran. <laughs> but he liked being center stage. He liked going out, and everybody said, I'm going to vote for you, John Why? <laughs> And, and, and he, he never feared failure, and he just kept on. But one thing he kept, Oscar, was his reputation of honor, standing up for what he believed in against all odds. He wasn't a very good politician, if you what we term, determine as politicians. I never wanted to be. I wouldn't have run except to wipe them all out because I, I grew up hating the politicians, the way they operated in the backroom deals. But uh, in any event... Uh, he had a great career and an honorable career and left me a good family name and when opened you, a lot of doors for me. When you were working with him as an attorney with him, you were also uh, serving uh, in the military. Well, I went to, went to Fort Knox. For Fort the, Knox for yeah. the reserves. Uh-huh. Uh, was it difficult to work for your father? How, how did that relationship go? No, I tell you, my whole lifetime, I don't think I ever hired him. He would always correct my manners at the dinner table tell me how sloppy I was the way I ate dinner. And, but other than that, he was the father just always inspired me. And every conversation we ever had driving around or all the trips we made to golf tournaments together when I was his caddy, uh, it was always about trying to inspire me of what I could do or have an opportunity to do someday. And uh, that's why I was so driven uh, to perhaps have the kind of career I've had. And, uh, you know, we all need an inspiration somewhere. You see people that are successful in life and you look back, well, what happened in 
their youth that someone lit their life to go do something, you know, like yourself. And who in the hell thought you'd have some most public sports uh, publication in the history of the University of Kentucky? And uh, so he inspired me, and, uh, and that got me started. And once you get started, gives you something to build on. 1960, you married Ellie. Yeah. Three children. Mm-hmm. All of done very, very well. Well, they done great, and she was a great partner. Great, man. We're best friends. We had dinner Friday night, and uh, we. Um, she was a great partner of KFC. I'd bring people in at all hours of the night from other parts of the country, and she'd fix them some dinner at 10, 11 o'clock, and, and I was running all over. I mean, KFC was the hottest thing in the industry at that time. So uh, she was a great partner, and we become great friends and have, have great family. In 1963... At a political breakfast, you met a guy by the name of Colonel Harlan Sanders, and the birth of your greatest claim to fame, Kentucky Fried Chicken Stroke. What kind of a political breakfast was that that you met him at, or do you recall? Well, uh, and I'm going to advance the story a little bit. My, my dad knew him, and I had stopped by there selling encyclopedias down at Corbin, his restaurant, so I knew him socially, and he knew what I looked like. And I was on a TV program on Wave TV in Louisville and introducing Ned Breathitt, governor, run against Happy Chandler, which had always been a foe of my dad's. And so uh, I was a youth chairman. I was interviewing Breathitt uh, on a panel. And the colonel called me at the end of the show and wanted to hire me as a real estate lawyer. And that was a time where I was trying to decide to get out of law it's too boring, and I didn't know how to make money. I was looking into other things, and I didn't go see him. I didn't know what he did. I didn't know if he worked out of his basement or whatever. I saw him at a Kentucky Derby breakfast is when it was, and I felt guilty not having gone by to say hello to him. And uh, I went by the next week and was fascinated. One thing led to another. He took me upstairs and said, John, let me show you how we make money. He had all these, like 600 little restaurants for these <laughs> drive around with his wife and stop in and say, buddy, let me cook you some chicken. If you like it, I'll give you a license and a nickel a head. He was taking in $100 a, a month from each one or maybe 150 or 200 And I was fascinated. And then that night he wanted to say, Johnny, come on with me. We're going to Frankfurt to look at the Pink Pig. I want to start a barbecue franchise. And I said, yeah, I'll drive with you. And I was fascinated with what they were talking about. And then that night I had KFC for the first time, and it was fabulous. And seeing me in a white suit, the light bulb went off instantly. I said, I'm going to find a seat around here. This <laughs> is something special. And I said, Colonel, I'll do the barbecue franchise with you. We'll be partners, and I'll raise the money. And not knowing how I'm going to raise it, I raised $16,000 from my eventual partner, Jack Massey. And now, was there another group of people in with you, or just no, the two no, of you? Just, just Jack Massey and I. I, I borrowed 16000 and y'all paid $2 million for it? Yeah. Uh, no, that's I built the barbecue franchise. Oh, okay. That put me in, and I hired his gal that was his main waitress down in Corbin to try to keep a connection to the colonel. And I went to school with his grandson, uh, Harlan, so he gave me access to at least not get thrown out when you go in the office because it's a family deal, and they were very protective of, of what they had. And, and then when I met Jack... Uh, we uh, finally had the idea one Sunday morning, his home, 
let's try to buy the colonel out. He's 74 years old, you know, and he's not going to build an organization with the potential. And so Jack suggested we impress the colonel by taking him out of his big bank in Nashville, the third Nashville, which was a major bank down there, and, and Sam Fleming, who was nationally known. And, and then we put on the dog, I guess, for lunch, and knowing the colonel wasn't impressed with anything at all. And we talked about a $2 million figure. And, and the president of the bank, uh, Webb, uh, uh, his last name was Webb, suggested uh, let's have a private meeting. We went off to a little room, and he said, look, uh, you know, you can get this for a million and a half. You don't have to talk to him, too. And I'm glad I spoke up. I was only 29 years old, and I said, if you offer him $1 less than that $2 million, you'll never talk to him again. I mean, that's the way the colonel was. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, they did. I said, if it's worth a million, have it's worth two million. And uh, fortunately, we went back in and said, Colonel, we're going to accept your offer. And then the real interest starts. We, he said we, we couldn't buy unless we got approval of his first franchisee, Pete Harmon, that was sort of the leader of all the franchisees. And once he opened in Salt Lake, it was very successful. And then others learned from Pete and the colonel's own operation. And so we had to get the approval. And that night, it was like a New Year's event, and we went to some big New Year's party, and I had to write the contract at midnight because we are going to meet at 6 o'clock at Pete's restaurant there and sign the deal. And we gave him $50,000 down deposit, but said what the terms were. And we met there, and we all signed it. And uh, I didn't know where I was going to get my part. I was going to put up, I think, $10,000 or something, and I said, oh, yeah, I'll give him that. <laughs> and I went back to Bud Fisher at the Liberty Bank and, and got the money. And then the colonel protested because his, his family, they didn't want to sell. They want to keep their positions. And they, they, every day he was quitting. They go in and tell him they're going to change the recipe. They're going to fire you, Colonel. All these horror stories. And I'm sitting listening to him. I go almost two months. And I Jack. Get that damn lawyer, uh, finish that thing, and we'll all get this done in a day. And uh, anyway, he was, uh, I guess, just counting on the lawyer to do it right. So finally, you'll enjoy this. I went to Barry Bingham Sr., who I'd met before, and I said, Mr. Bingham, I just wanted to tell you about a— Who's the owner of the Curry Journal. Yeah. Yeah. And it was always nice to me. And uh, asked me, I told him, I said, we, uh, my partner and I had just bought Colonel Sanders out. And I thought you might want the story. Well, the next day, they come out with cameras and a reporter, and the colonel was all, you know. He loved that attention. Oh, yeah. And so we had a picture of he and I looking over a white picket fence and uh, went nationwide. So from then on, you know, he was sort of hooked. I don't think I would have ever closed it if Mr. Bingham hadn't uh, put a story out because we did have a contract. You immediately started buying up, consolidating the little places, there's one that lasted forever. One of the last ones to quit selling Kentucky Fried Chicken without the arch thing was a little place called Starlight Drive-In on Nicholasville. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell us what you know about that. Well, uh, it was, wasn't Rasmussen, was their last name? Yes, that's yeah, it. Yeah, nice people. Yes. And I remember Wayne Smith telling me how they prayed when they moved from the Starlight to a like a million-dollar investment with a chicken store. This is back in... I guess the late 60s or whatever, because after a while we realized some of these restaurants were doing 10, 20 percent of the business in chicken, and so we I said let's let's try some service stations going there and 
came a couple hundred a month and put the bucket up. And so we learned that we had a real business. And then from there, we built the image, but that's what proved it. But Rasmussen was the fourth franchise in the whole system and, and really dedicated. I think they just sold their business on Nicholasville Road last year. And, but they made a living out of it and a very dedicated family. All these franchisees really were the foundation that built the company because they realized this made them money. This made them money they never knew before. We treated them right. We never raised the price. And uh, we gave them the stock. In fact, the colonel got up at our national convention the second year because he couldn't stand all this success for having. And we're going public, and we had just gone public. He went up for 30 minutes for 1,500 franchisees, and we were all excited. And, at the, and we had a head table, my partner on one side, the colonel be on the other. And he just pretended to blast us. He said, you know, we don't think about the chicken business. We're going to change the recipe, and we're going to do this and that. He was on a tear. He wore a black suit, which he never did, and we didn't know why. But he, he was cut out of the pension fund because he didn't belong to the pension fund. He was 75 years old, and we had a contract with him for services. But anyway, he was teed off, and he unloaded. It was, a, it was really a special time. And Jack said, can I find us? And Jack just, you know. And for some reason, I stood up all night playing gin and rummy with a friend of mine, George Baker, that was executive vice president, went to UK with me. And I had about seven yellow pieces of paper like that pad you've got there. And, and I'd throw that away. And I, I got up. I didn't know what to say when the colonel got through. But he, he let those feelings of frustration out. And my wife's crying, uh, Claude, his wife's crying at the table. All these franchisees think their future's all gone now without the colonel. And I just leaned on the podium. I said, you know, the colonel's an artist. And like all artists, he's a perfectionist. And we have to realize that we're all part of the colonel's dream. You have to pinch yourself sometimes to realize how fortunate we all are. And I said, you know, colonel, when we bought this company, we promised you we would honor every deal you made with your family franchisees. and not a person in this room that can say we haven't honored every deal that you ever made. He said, all right, raise your hand. <laughs> oh, he's a pistol. And so then I finished that, you know, we haven't raised the price. We haven't had a lawsuit. And Colonel, we gave the franchisees a stock option and our company went public that made them a lot more money than they've ever paid us. So it really sort of clinched the deal. We finally had a transfer from all the Colonel's attachment to our new company, and then we just took off. But the colonel, I'll give him credit, he was the deal. And I listened to him probably more than all 10,000 employees. Uh, you were never known as an individual to fish too long in the same pond. Yeah. You were always looking for new opportunities, new ideals. By the late 60s, you're starting, something gave you the bug of basketball. In 1971, you sold your KFC interests $284 million. In the Same 70s, it was a lot of good time. It was, that's right. And yeah. you found, suddenly you got involved with the Kentucky Colonels. What, what led you to become interested in basketball? Nothing more than four, four of my best friends, uh, David Jones and Wendell Cherry of Humana. And uh, then a couple of others, David Grissom and, and Stuart J. Uh, David Grissom? Yeah, same with the chairman of, 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 of U of L. U of L, yes. And they were young guys, you know, and they were winging it in their, I guess, uh, late 30s. We were all about the same age. 
and wanted me to go in with him. I said, sure, you got me in. And about second year, we had a meeting, and Wendell was the one that put the team together, giving him credit, Wendell Cherry, who went to UK also. And uh, they, he was bragging on the general manager. And I just couldn't help but comment at the end of the meeting that, you know, Wendell's the first time I've ever seen a general manager commended for losing $500,000. Know? <laughs> and so we all sort of woke up and uh, said, well, sell. It's crazy, you know, because no one ever made money. One thing led to another. And then uh, when I went home, you may have heard the story. My 11-year-old son was sitting at the dinner table job, and a little tears came in his eye. And he said, Dad, he said, did you sell the Kentucky Colonels? And Mom said that it's going to be called the Cincinnati Colonels now. I said, oh, my God, what did I do? I said, we'll buy them back. And Ellie, you're going to run it. I'm not going to fool with it. Let's back up just a little bit. The Colonels were actually originally owned by Joe and Mammy. Gregory. Uh-huh. Uh, do you realize how it was developed, how they formed it? I didn't know anything about that, no. Uh, so fact, they, I mean, they had it in two years, and you bought it from them. You and yeah. Wendell and yeah. all the people bought it from them. Uh, I, I was told at the time, those first two years, the colors of the Lowell Colonels was green and white. And when you took over, you changed it to blue and white. I don't remember. I, I don't know. Uh, this this come from a guy that, that worked there a few years. Is that right? And then the, the year that you won the title in 75, it went to red, white, and blue to match the ABA ball, red, yeah. white, and blue. That, um, that can be true. Yeah. Um, the years that you had it, you, you made some bold moves. You put in a 10-woman board of directors. Led by Ellie. That's right. Uh, what, what led you to that? Well, I'd been to an NBA game the year before, and I think Walter Kennedy was the NBA chairman. And, and he had invited me to go to the game with him, and he had his PR guy there that had a date with some flamboyant uh, uh, woman from, from France, a French gal. And she would say, oh, I just love watching these players, their bodies, the way they glide through the air and all that. And I thought, well. I wish your people would see you using your body language there with that. No, that's right. And, <laughs> and, and then uh, Walter Kennedy said, well, 53% of our customers are women that go to basketball games. So uh, when it came up, I said, Ellie, you're going to own the team. And uh, the first press conference we had, I loved it. Because she never asked me for any advice. She's a pretty uh, independent lady. And uh, I, I knew you don't have to be a genius to do something like this. It's all pretty much common sense. And the first press conference, uh, you'll appreciate this, Oscar, we had about 300 people there. And finally, a press person spoke up and said, Ms. Brown, what do you know about running a pro basketball team? And she said about as much as my husband knew about fried chicken when he got into Kentucky Fried <laughs> Chicken. And she blew him away. And she had a great time. And she allowed me to do the – whatever trades or whatever, which I didn't necessarily do that good a job. We already had a team. I, we did hire Hubie Brown. They had never been hired as a head coach and now in the Hall of Fame. In 72-73, uh, um, Wendell sold his share to a group in Cincinnati, and that's what you referred me, yeah, to uh, about yourself. Yeah. And suddenly everybody was fearful he was going to move to Cincinnati. And I guess that's when your son and Gavalva, you end up buying it back. I bought it back with a deal where we played 10 games in Cincinnati. Well, no one showed up in Cincinnati. They owned, they owned the big basketball arena, and they couldn't 
find any tenants. And uh, they're, they're the heirs of oh, the guy that owns the St. Louis Cardinals now from that family. And DeWitt, I think is his name. And so we, we didn't get along very well because we were you know losing attendance. wasn't going to work there. So I ended up settling with him and owned 100% of it. We had like a 50-50 deal up to then. Uh, newspaper reports back then, when you put the 10 women on the board, uh, Mike Storm didn't exactly like no, dealing with that. Well, they weren't going to work for any women. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he ended up being commissioner of the ABA. Yeah. And I was president of the ABA, so yeah. a little bit of a conflict there. Um, you hired Hubie Brown uh-huh. and won a title. Uh-huh. And then you committed the unforgivable sin. That's right. You sold the rights to Dan Nissel. Right. How difficult was that, and did you ever regret it? Well, knowing Dan and the way he handled it, yeah, I really admired him. He's really an outstanding Kentuckian, not only in basketball, but in every way. He's just a, I wish, you know, anyone would be happy to have a son like Dan Nissel. But to me, it was a matter of dollars and cents. We're sitting there losing $700,000 a year, and I didn't see any future. And we had the league that, you know, two or three teams every year were dropping out. And they had talked me into being the chairman, which I didn't want to be, but I hired Dave DeBusher, if you remember, to take Storm's place. And uh, it, there just wasn't any substance, and I didn't want to wait another year. And plus, Hubert Brown told me that Dan Issel is a center. He's not a forward. And it really prolonged Dan's career to go to Denver because he became an all-pro. Because you had a guy by the name of Artis Gilmore, too. Absolutely. And uh, to me, Artis was the next thing to Jabbar in the game. And I didn't think that we were losing that much in the team. And I just felt if we're going to stay a, a, another year, that we're going to do something. Don't lose another $800,000. That's a lot of money. And uh, that's why I did it. And I, I didn't feel bad about it other than Ellie got mad at me. And, uh, and, and we had a little argument, word has it, one of the few arguments we ever had. Do, uh, do, looking back at it, do you wish you'd tough, toughen it out? No. No, because it didn't make any sense. But I'm talking about when the league folded and you had to deal with Boston and, and Buffalo. No, I didn't, I didn't have, we didn't have any partners. All the other teams had syndicates of 30, 40 people chipping in. We were the only one. We were the free riders. And we always paid our bills. And uh, I did uh, remember the meeting. I went to the meeting. They didn't want to call the meeting up there. And I'm, but now you just got through going through $230 million in 71. Did you have a lot of money there that could have no, taken No, I didn't have all that. That was all that. <laughs> well, that was uh, supposed to have been your share. What? No, oh, no, it wasn't my share, no. No, uh, no, it wasn't anything like that. It was, you know, but uh, enough for me to have a very uh, eventful life. So, Looking back at it with pro franchises, what they're worth today, $2 billion today. Of course, I guess that's the glory of 2020 hindsight. No, I, I can I can add to that. I ended up getting myself in a better position because uh, I didn't think Louisville could support it. We had nobody volunteer. We asked around to get other investors and didn't have anybody. And I, I did it as a community. When I meet, meeting when the other four owners wanted to go into the NBA, 
uh, they asked me if I would take two million for the team. I said, what for? I mean, you know, we weren't making money. It don't mean anything. And but I guess they had to satisfy the other owners before they could fold up the league. And I said, on one condition that you don't pay somebody else uh, more than you pay us, but we'll accept that if that's what you want to do. You don't have to. And uh, the other team, they were, they were, they were real New York hustlers, and in all due respect, and they had a lawyer, Don Shoepackers, very vocal. And so we went out and sat out there for like three hours. And I didn't know what you were doing other than I did say don't pay anybody more than us. But by the time we got through, because they knew I would probably stop it. I knew Larry O'Brien. You know, I put those telephones on for him. And, and, and I've been glad to go and talk to him to get them in on a better. But like $12 million or something, non-deductible. And, and back in those days, that's goodwill. It's not worth anything. You know, it's just money gone. And we didn't know if anybody could ever make money. No one ever had. But I, I didn't regret that because... I didn't have uh, I didn't have any reason to think that it would work or that I wanted to carry the full load, and Ellie was very good about it. And uh, but later I ended up uh, buying Buffalo Braves. I got a little bit lonely, and I've been now, now. Now after you were you were quoted at the time that the Colonels folded. You really didn't enjoy being involved in the business of basketball. I didn't. But yet you got into it a second time. I, well, I didn't enjoy the business because Ellie did that. I mean, she sold the tickets, and I would, you know, give her advice on players or dealing things that she didn't feel comfortable with, but she did Do you regret job. the Ladner deal? Yes, I, I made a mistake. Uh, I made a mistake. Uh, thinking that John Roach was going to be another Louis Lampier someday, and he wasn't. And I take full responsibility for that. I brought in Maurice Lucas to take Dan Nissel's place, which you would think would be a good placement when we lost Dan. I brought him out of a dispersal, but it was just a mess. And something unlike, you know, I, I didn't see any future for the ABA, and I was glad to see my partners going to the NBA. Does it surprise you, even to this day, how the mystique has developed and stood the test of time in the popularity of ABA basketball from the 70s well the ABA but they, we were the fun league and and the NBA you were also rebel and we were rebels and we had the three-point play and we had the red white and blue basketball and and it was a fun game and we had great players from Dr. J and George Gervin and David Thompson and Dan Issel and Artis Gilmore and in fact the LA they just had a reception at Derby time this year and they were in the, they were grand marshals in the Vegas biggest parade in Louisville. And it's so nice that they're all such fine people. Louis Dampier, you know, uh, Hall of Famer. And uh, so the legend has continued on because Louisville's really hungry for a team. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. You just heard part one of Oscar's conversation with John Y. Brown. In episode 66, Oscar will continue his discussion with the former governor and you will hear more about the Kentucky Colonels and his ownership of the Boston Celtics, his run for governor, and the role he played in creating the best college basketball rivalry in the country. And there's some other topics that sports fans in Kentucky will find most interesting. Make sure you subscribe to Conversations through iTunes or the Google Play Store. Search for at Wildcat News and each new episode will be delivered to your mobile device Of course, you can always listen to episodes of Conversations at oscarcombs.com. 
If you would like to keep up with Oscar, make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Wildcat News. I'm Bill Robinson, and you have been listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. And as always, go Big Blue.